We're going to study God's Word. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Philippians chapter 1, I suppose, because we're kind of wrapping up our series these past nine weeks, walking through the book of Philippians. I hope that this series has been an encouragement to you. Uh, I'm praying that lasting fruit comes from this uh, study in our life together. And so we're going to kind of just review some things, stir ourselves up by way of reminder, and walk through this book together. So we're going to flip a couple of different places in, in the process of moving through. But let me just say this by way of, of introduction. We want to be a church that's, that's deep and wide. So we, we want depth, but we don't just want depth. We don't just want our roots to run really deep and we, we know a lot of things and we have really good relationships and we've got deep theology, but leave no mark on the city and leave no mark on the world. On the other hand, we don't want to just be wide. We don't want to just say, go, 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 spread, spread, further, 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 faster, 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 and not have deep relationships and not deeply fellowship with God and with one another and commune with him and let the overflow of that communion with God and with one another be uh, a difference maker in our mission together as Jesus intended for it to be when he said they will know, those who are outside of the church will know that you're Christians, they'll know you're my disciples, they'll know that the Father sent me by the love that you have for one another. In other words, it's supposed to ring true when they see the way that you love one another. And so these things are mutually reinforcing the nurture of the church, the mission of the church. We, we don't want to just go lots of places and tell people good news, and yet our commitment to each other is paper thin. And so we have Philippians. And Philippians speaks both of those languages very fluently, nurture language and mission language. It, it highlights both gospel-centered community and gospel-driven mission and the way in which those things reinforce one another. And so I simply want to stir us up by way of reminder and consider with you seven resolutions that are worth pursuing together. The name of this series has been Mission Together, and we're just going to wrap up by looking at seven holy, I think, sacred biblical resolutions that are worth pursuing together as a church. And so... I'll frame it up this way. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, resolution number one, we will keep Jesus at the center and thank God we're not alone. We'll keep Jesus at the center and thank God that we're not alone. Look at chapter one, verse three. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And you keep reading through the rest of chapter one, and we studied this in depth several weeks ago. You see that if a church demonstrates a commitment to the cause of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul is ready to rejoice in other words, there aren't a million hoops that you have to jump through as a local church or a partner ministry in the city for Paul to say, I'm all in, I'm rejoicing, I love what you guys are doing over there. There's not a, a bunch of hoops that you have to jump through. Paul just simply says, look at verse 18. 
just that little, that little uh, section right there in verse 18 where he says, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. It's a short list, right? Christ is proclaimed, Paul's ready to rejoice. I, um, I have the privilege of having uh, relationships with pastors across the city, and I've sat down with many pastors and have become friends with them over the past few years in particular. And so Jim Cooley and Bob Flayhart and Scott Slayton and Greg Corbin and Danny Wood and we know Bart Box and Corey Varden and then I meet with a, a smaller group of guys every month, Thomas Beavers from New Rising Star, Alton Hardy and Fairfield and Joel Brooks, and then there's another ministry that's run in the city by a man named Tracy Hibbs. And we meet every month, and we share our lives, and we unburden our souls, and we pray for each other, and we talk about racial reconciliation and what that looks like in our own lives and what that, what that could look like in our city and in and through our churches. And I come away from these, these times of fellowship with these brothers so freshly grateful for the rich gospel partnerships we have in this city. This city is rich with gospel proclaiming churches and ministries that are all about making much of Jesus here and around the world. We are not alone. We want, we want these churches, these other churches, we want them to grow. We want those churches to thrive. I hope that you hear every time, most of the time when we, when we have our prayer of intercession time, it's not just focused on one thing as we did this morning, which I think there's tremendous value in doing that as well. But a lot of times we'll pray starting here and just move across locally into the city and into the world. And I hope when you hear the names of pastors that are mentioned, you hear the names of churches that we're praying for, I hope the message is coming through loud and clear that there is not rivalry between churches in this city. If revival comes to the city of Birmingham and it doesn't come through the Church of Brook Hills, but it actually lands in the city through Redeemer or Oak Mountain, praise God. <laughs> However it comes, bring it. Because we're all on the same team, we're wearing the same jersey, we want the gospel of Jesus to be made known, we want people to come to salvation, we want lives to be changed. You think about our, our life together, you think about our passions and our pursuits as a church, we're not alone, we're not alone in wanting gathered worship, and this is a passion of ours. We want our gathered worship to be saturated with the gospel. We want our gathered worship to be filled up, absolutely saturated with God's word. We're not the only ones who care about that. People all over the city, churches all over the city want their worship to be saturated with biblical truth. We're not alone in a desire to, to display racial reconciliation. That's a desire of ours. Lots of other churches as well. We're not alone in wanting to reach out to vulnerable children and orphans and care for them and foster care and be engaged in that. There are churches all over the city. We praise God for that. We're not the only people who care about the Great Commission. There are churches all over this city who want the world to know that Jesus saves and want people who currently can't hear the gospel because they have almost no access to the gospel. There are churches all over the city who want the world to hear the message of Jesus. We praise God for that. We wouldn't have it any other way. And so Paul, Paul wasn't stingy 
with his rejoicing. He didn't have this huge punch list of things he had to run through before he was ready to rejoice at what God is doing in the life of that local church on the other side of Philippi. He says, are you proclaiming Jesus? If the answer comes back yes, he says, then let's rejoice. He doesn't say, hey, let's talk about end times. Okay, let's find out what your church structure looks like. Let's talk about this and that and the lighting on your stage and the style of worship. He doesn't get into all that stuff. He doesn't have this massive punch list. Are you proclaiming Jesus? Awesome, let's rejoice. I'm so glad you're doing that. Keep doing that. (laughs) Can we have that spirit as a church where we start to celebrate the moment we find out the gospel is proclaimed there? This broad, kind of magnanimous spirit in the church. That's what we want to have in this city. So that's resolution number one. Number two, we will put others before ourselves and lean into unity. We'll put others before ourselves and lean into unity. Look at chapter two, verse one. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. A lot of that, those are just synonymous phrases. Why is Paul stacking them? Because he doesn't want them to miss how important unity is for the progress of the gospel. So he stacks those phrases. Same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing, verse three, out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. This is, as we've seen, and it becomes so clear in chapter four, verse 15, that this is the most missional church Paul knows of. He says, when nobody else was in the advancement of the gospel with me, partnering with me, sending checks to put me on a train. When nobody else was doing that, Philippi kept doing that. You kept funding the forward movement of the gospel. When nobody else was doing it, you were still doing it. Paul wants this church to continue to be missionally forward moving. He wants their foot on the gas pedal of mission moving out into the world. But but notice In chapter two, and we saw this in depth, in chapter two, the way that Paul contends for the health of gospel mission is by contending for gospel humility and gospel unity. He's talking about this thing that's that's further upstream, this thing that yields health for the mission of the church. Paul reminds them in chapter two of this story, the controlling narrative of the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. They center around, we gather around, we sang about it this morning. We gather around Christ crucified, right? Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except this message, Christ and him crucified and risen again from the dead. And then he sings the song, the great Christian hymn in chapter two that Jesus came as a servant, humbled himself, became a man, laid aside his glory and his privileges and he entered into this world and then he was humbled all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul is basically saying, if you keep moving from there, from the Christ hymn in chapter two, Paul is saying, if that's the central story, there should be no pride and no superiority 
in the church. That should have no place in the church. And it's almost as though Paul is saying, we just sang the hymn about what Christ has done to lay aside his glory and his privileges and he served us savingly. That's the central story. The reason that Paul spends so much time talking about humility. The reason he says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who made himself a servant is because, get this, listen to this, the greatest threat and hindrance to the mission of the church is pride in the church. That's the greatest threat. The biggest hindrance to our mission as a local church isn't inadequate training in evangelism. The problem isn't mainly wrong methods. It's wrong hearts. And that's why Paul goes straight to the heart of the matter. He says, are you staying low before God? Are you gathering in fellowship at the foot of the cross? No one's higher, no one's lower. Are you gathering at that, where the ground is level at the foot of the cross? And are you worshiping the Savior there? In other words, when Paul brings correction in this letter, when Paul addresses pride and grumbling in chapter two and legalism in chapter three and infighting in chapter four, he hasn't left the subject of mission behind. He's saying these things affect the forward movement of the gospel in your mission as a church. Let me just apply that to us, Brook Hills. If only by the grace of God, if, if we stay low and stick together and stay close to the gospel and keep this firmly in our grasp and let the gospel sit at the center of our life together, God will do great things through us. Despite ourselves, God will do great things through us. We can be confident that he who began a good work will complete his good work because the gospel's at the center and that's what does the work. It does all the heavy lifting. The good news does the heavy lifting by the power of the Spirit. We do that, we stay low and stick together. God will work in us and through us and despite us and over against us when necessary. But look, we, we have to be humble. God opposes the proud. Do we, want, do we want God to be against us? There's nothing more terrifying than that. For God to be against us because we're proud and we've got our act together and we figured it all out. No, we, we wanna stay low, we wanna be a humble people. Look, moving forward as a church from here, humility is gonna be our best friend and pride will be our worst enemy. Resolution number three. We will boast in Christ alone. We will boast in Christ alone. Look at chapter three, verse one. Now we're coming really into not only the center of the letter, physically, geographically the center, but the thematic center of the whole letter. Chapter three, verse one. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about legalistic purveyors of works righteousness, teachers that you have to earn your way in or earn your keep. Verse three, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Paul says in another place that the gospel doesn't 
delimit boasting. It doesn't put a governor on boasting. It kills it. It excludes. It rules out boasting. Because we have no claim before God. We have no no chips to barter with. He owes us nothing but wrath, and we've received grace. (laughs) I mean, who would have expected? This is the great twist ending, the surprise ending. You even see it back there in Genesis 3. He says, God tells them, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then they eat of it, and he says, Adam, where are you? And, And why are they hiding in the bushes? Because God promised, you eat this, you die. And then he comes, and he pronounces curses, and he says, there will be massive consequences in your life and all throughout the earth. And then there's this surprising twist. I'm gonna send someone. The offspring of the woman will come down the road and will crush this serpent's head. They didn't say, well, of course. I mean, you're gonna, you gotta offer us grace. He didn't offer grace to the fallen angels. It was sentence. It was curtains. You tried to take the throne that belonged to God, it's over for you. No redemption for the fallen angels. It's a surprise ending. Grace is a surprise to the church. And then yet, later on, right here in the New Testament, you have people coming in and saying, yeah, grace is important, but so are your works for you to earn your merit and your acceptance before God. I, several years ago, my, uh, my wife and I were given a, a wonderful and generous gift card to the best restaurant we've ever been to in our entire lives from that moment until this day. It was many years ago, and it's called Irene's Cuisine in downtown New Orleans, in the French Quarter. And uh, still never eaten better food than we ate there. And we went, and there was this, this gift card. We go in, we just don't belong there, right? <laughs> I look at so the table, two, two tables away is Placido Domingo, the world-famous tenor who sang and toured with Luciano Pavarotti. So that's, that's where we're at. We're hobnobbing with the uppity-ups in New Orleans for faking it in a major way, right? And we, we've got this generous gift card, and I'm like, babe, we'll never be here again. We'll never eat at a restaurant. It's back to Applebee's next week, right? Um, and I'm like, let's go, let's get everything. <laughs> it's like, let's load up, let's get not one, let's get two appetizers, let's get the best entrees on the menu, let's load up on dessert. If we run out of gift card, we'll pay, we'll stack on. This is the only time in our lives we'll eat like this. So let's go all the way in, right? We did that. And, um, and when the bill came, we ate just the most amazing food. And when the bill came, we realized... Um, we still had $40 left on that gift card after maxing out everything we could possibly eat. And you know, you got all the to-go boxes and there was still $40 left on the card. This is such a fancy restaurant. I just said, babe, let's just give all of the 40 just to the waiter because we'll never be back here ever again. Right? But, but maybe you've ever experienced this before where you go in a restaurant, maybe your parents or somebody's giving you a gift card for Christmas or something. You go in and they forgot to write what the amount is on the gift card. And so there's that kind of, ah, oh, I don't know. Uh, this could be $20 <laughs> and I'm in major trouble, right? And so what do you do? You, you put in the gift card because you don't know how much is on it. And you also put your own you know, most reliable credit card <laughs> in the mix as well in case there's a surplus, in case you have to supplement the gift card with your own funds. So often, friends, we do that with God's grace. So we receive this, this gift card of the righteousness of Jesus through the cross. We want acceptance before 
God. And so we put the gift card of the cross in, but we also throw in our favorite charge card. We also throw in our most reliable good works card. So I'm gonna put the cross and my Bible reading plan. It's been good this week. I'm gonna throw that in, right? The cross plus my week of no outbursts or emotional meltdowns. The the cross plus my uh, well-behaved and above average children. The cross plus my regiment of spiritual disciplines. The cross plus my downsized house, right? The cross plus my compassionate deeds here in the city or in the world. Friend, there's no need for an extra card. (laughs) The, The gospel is that good. His grace is that totally comprehensive. Your, your good works won't get you anywhere. There's actually nothing on the card. <laughs> there is no extra charge card that you have. You're not saved by Jesus plus your works. Your, your good works, we need to hear this, your good works didn't make it easier for Jesus to save you. In a, in a major way, they kind of got in the way. You see that played out in so many ways with the Pharisees. That's why we need to hear God's word say to us, your righteousness is filthy rags. It's not getting you anywhere. Look, Jesus Christ bore God's wrath against the sins of the prodigal son and the elder brother. Both of them, right? Here's here's one of my biggest concerns for us as a church. That we don't get the gospel. I don't mean people outside this room. I mean people in this room. We don't understand how great the grace of God is. We don't understand how utterly scandalous the cross is. The cross, friend, was not a Kickstarter account to your self-salvation project. It, it, didn't, it wasn't a beginning sort of initial seed gift to get you on your way, to push you down the road. Your, your assurance isn't tied, right? Your assurance doesn't depend on the spiritual stats you put up at the end of today. That's not what this is. So, so what does that mean for your own personal life? It means the day that you held it together spiritually, God in Christ loved you. It means the day that you came totally unglued, God in Christ loved you. That's how full the atonement really is. It covers everything. Look, you can't touch up a masterpiece. You walk up to the Mona Lisa, brush down. Don't touch it. You touch it, you ruin it. It's the same thing with salvation. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. Everybody's got their brushes out about to touch up the masterpiece of the gospel of God's free grace. And Paul says, brushes down. Nobody touch this thing or you ruin it. It's perfect on its own. Don't tamper with free grace. Listen, Brooke Hills, if, if we get this, everything changes. Everything begins to change. Look, we're not lacking in evangelistic fervor because we haven't stumbled on the right methodology yet. The demon is in deeper. Far deeper. We, we don't need another book. We need, it's a beholding issue. We behold the glory of Christ and we're transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. We're changed by seeing. We see him, we savor him. That creates delight in our hearts in Jesus and then out we go into the streets, into the nations. It's brimming over. 
Spirit of God brings truth home to our hearts and, and the overflow is a life of worship and obedience, glorifying God and making much of Jesus. It's a beholding issue. Number four, fourth resolution, we will live as kingdom citizens. We will live as kingdom citizens. I'm gonna be extra brief on this one because I hope to come back to this and, and really dive deeply into this issue next year. Look at chapter three, verse 14. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way, and if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. He, he talks about us being citizens of the heavenly kingdom. We don't, we don't live like this world lives. Christians don't fight like this world fights. We don't love the praise this world loves. We don't have the same ambitions that are driving us, that are driving those who haven't discovered the joy that's found in Jesus. The surpassing, as Paul says in chapter three, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That's our driving ambition. If, if these other things are our ambitions, if we look like the world, we sound like the world, we live like the world, we spend like the world, if those are the things that we're doing as Christians, we have temporarily at least forgotten our true identity. We don't belong to this world. We weren't made for here. This isn't the air we naturally breathe. We're in exile. We are strangers here. This isn't home. Feels like it, but it's not home. You were made for another world. You won't be ultimately satisfied and fulfilled until you get there. That's our life in this world. Christians cultivate this awareness. I was made for another world. I'm looking for another city whose designer and builder is God. I'm running toward the celestial city. Every day of my life, I'm marching to Zion. That's biblical truth. We have one king, Jesus. We live by the policies of another kingdom that's above all the kingdoms of this world. We're ambassadors for that kingdom in this fallen realm. We're strangers here. It shouldn't feel comfortable. Here we have no lasting city, Hebrews writes, the writer of Hebrews. We look for the city that is to come. Number five. Resolution number five. We will pray, think, and live Christianly. Pray, think, and live Christianly. Chapter four, if you look at it, chapter four, verse six. Don't worry, so we'll start with the prayer piece. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we looked at this just, just last week. Christians pray. Why? Because they have to? No, because we are dependent creatures. And, 
and we know that, we realize that, and we're, we're not adversarial. We're, that's not, we're not allergic to that reality. We lean into that reality. We are dependent. We are inadequate. We are insufficient. God is able. God is over all things. God is sovereign. And Christians, the older we get in Christ, the more we discover the sweetness of that truth. And it drives us to prayer. Not just at that special set-aside time in the morning, but all throughout the day, Christians instinctively, as a habit of the heart, pray, they run to God. We, we, spent, we spent the last few summers looking at the book of Psalms, in part just to free you up to talk to God naturally. I remember when, when my wife and I dated, and I was in college, and we had a long-distance relationship, and uh, I, I, was, I had such a hard time with small talk, and I was so awkward with any period of silence that um, there's actually a photo my friend Craig captured of me when I wasn't aware of me talking to my wife on the phone with index cards in front of me. And I would actually use those index cards. If there was any silence longer than three seconds, I would say, huh, by the way, on Thursday, this, you know, I'm just reading whatever happened (laughs) in that moment. It's like I couldn't just naturally talk, you know? We were getting to know each other from a long distance kind of thing. Look, if you don't naturally know how to speak to God, there's an entire book in the Psalms that's index cards. Just says, hey, say this. Awkward silence, say this. Don't know what to ask for? Ask for this. It's right here. This is how Christians talk. Which means what? Read through the Psalms. It means you can ask for forgiveness. It means you can talk to God about deliverance from fear. It means you can ask for healing in your body. You can ask for help. You can ask for insight and wisdom. You can, you can pray for God to give you victory over some temptation. You can pray for daily bread. You can pray for friends. You can ask for a bazillion things. We said this when we, when we studied last week that no prayer is too small. How, how freeing is that? No prayer is too small because Peter said, cast all your cares on the Lord, knowing he cares for you. And Peter said that under divine inspiration. No prayer is too small. He cares about everything. No prayer is too big because he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask, think, or imagine. So there's no prayer too big. There's no prayer too small. Christians instinctively bring it all before God. Next, the thoughts piece. And Christians embrace God's agenda for our thoughts. Look at verse eight. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. So Christians, as Christians, we we don't believe that spiritual maturity results from letting our minds go wherever they want to go. So Paul tells us here under divine inspiration, send your thoughts here. We have a curriculum. We have God's curriculum for your thought life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It doesn't change on some odd Thursday. These are the things you think about. These are the things we give our minds, we reflect deeply, we mentally grab onto excellent things, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable things. We send our thoughts in that direction. I heard somebody say that the difference between having a personal budget and not having a personal budget is the difference between telling your money where to go and asking your money where it went. And I think the same thing is true of the Christian mind. 
We don't just ask where our minds have been for the past 10. Oh, goodness, what have I been thinking about these past 10 minutes? We send our minds on an errand. Go get me something excellent. Go get me something honorable. We're thinking on purpose. We're telling our mind where to go in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we pray, we think, and we live Christianly. Paul talks about contentment in the life of the Christian in verse 12. Look at it. Picking up in the second part of verse 12. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Content in all circumstances. Paul isn't saying, you know, I'm okay being homeless and I'm okay being loaded. I'm okay being rich, right? It's not primarily about economic bracket. The point is, the point is I'm living in reliance on Christ, whether it's a season of lack or a season of abundance. I'm living in reliance on Jesus. In other words, when I had abundance, Christ was everything. When I hoped somebody would bring me water, Epaphroditus, Christ was everything in both situations. My chains didn't rob my joy and my comforts didn't become my security. When the ball was bouncing away from me, I wasn't losing my joy in Christ. When the ball was bouncing in my direction and everything was coming my way, I didn't, I didn't find my security in that. You know, it's hard to, harder to say which one of those is a bigger miracle. That his chains didn't rob his joy or that his comforts didn't become his security. That's what Paul means when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christians can, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, pass both tests. The test of prosperity and the test of poverty. Plenty and poverty. We can keep our eyes on Jesus in abundance and in need. We can look to Christ. Number six, resolve that we will give generously to the cause of the gospel. We will give generously to the cause of the gospel. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, that's a, that's a catch word, the gospel meaning the, the movement of the gospel, the planting of churches, right? When I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now just notice what Paul just did with money. What Paul just did with offerings sent from the church at Philippi. He tied it to their love of the gospel. He tied it to gospel advance. He said, in the early days of the gospel, no church shared with me. What are you talking about? I'm saying no church sent checks. He said, in the matter of giving and receiving, except you alone. So your hearts were so fully into this that you were funding gospel mission. Not only does he tie their giving to their love for the spread of the gospel, he frames their act of giving as an act of worship. Notice his language in verse 18. A fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Is, is that what offering time feels like to us? 
acceptable sacrifice, fragrant, a fragrant aroma before God. In a way, it's no different than the songs that we sing, the hearts that we have of thanksgiving toward God. It's just expressed in another way. That's why we use that language, by the way, at the end of our gatherings when we're taking up the offering. So often, a person will come out and say, let's continue to worship as we give of our tithes and offerings. We're getting that language straight from places like Philippians 4, 18. Fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Look, when our hearts are captured by Jesus Christ, mission, the advancement of the gospel in the world isn't something we have to do. It's something we love to do. It's something we get to do. We delight to do this global offering. You know, we're coming into global offering month in the month of December where we give big, not only to our regular offering, but we give over and above to the global offering. And we send that money out the doors and it goes all over the world to do all kinds of great things in Jesus' name. And for us, I hope global offering isn't that month where we say, oh man, okay, now we got two offerings instead of one. I hope that our hearts as Christians having been captured by the gospel of Jesus, say, we get to give twice instead of once? Awesome. When do we start? December 2nd. I'm in. (laughs) It's a delight in our hearts. It's it's brimming in our hearts. We can't wait. That's why we encourage members. And we even use language like this. Look, if you're new here and you've never experienced global offering, we even use language like this in past years. And we'll say, look, if you don't know where to start, start by prayerfully considering matching the amount that you give to family and friends in Christmas gifts, match that amount to the global offering. Just prayerfully consider that. It's not a law by any means. It's just a place where you can prayerfully consider, maybe I'd start here. Either way, let me encourage us as a church to begin, if you haven't already, begin praying, begin seeking direction from God as we enter into the month of December so that every member of this body would take some step of faith. Won't look the same for everybody. We'll take some step of faith and invest in the advancement of the gospel here and around the world. Giving is is a spiritual discipline. You think about the other spiritual disciplines, right? The other spiritual disciplines grow by doing them, right? So you might say, you can't learn to pray until you pray. You can't learn to evangelize by just reading more books on evangelism. You learn to evangelize by going somewhere, starting some conversation, and fumbling and stumbling your way forward and learning in the process. That's how we grow in all the spiritual disciplines. In that same sense, you can't learn to give until you start giving. It has to start somewhere. The discipline starts somewhere. So giving Giving is a means of grace. It's it's a spiritual discipline for us. And and in God's grace, giving does a couple of things. It kills greed and it ignites gospel passion. It's wired by God to do that, to fire those things in our hearts. And finally, number seven, seventh resolution. We will rejoice and live in the good of God's grace. We will rejoice and live in the good of God's grace. Grace, this letter begins and ends with grace. Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's grace at the beginning, it's grace at the end, and it's joy all throughout the middle. It's permeating joy throughout the entire letter. So just, you might wanna circle these verses. Just open to chapter one, verse three, and we're just gonna run through and look at these 
verses very quickly and just notice the word joy. It, it runs through the whole book. Verse three, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy, there it is, for all of you. Skip down to verse 18. Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Skip down to verse 25. I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul, what do you want for the church at Philippi? I want them to make progress in faith. I want them to make progress and joy in faith. Chapter two, verse two. Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Skip down to verse 17 of chapter two. I am, here's the word, glad, here's another one, and rejoice with all of you in the same way you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So rejoicing and gladness flowing in all directions between Paul and the church at Philippi, just gladness and rejoicing. Skip down to verse 28 of chapter two. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him. Remember, catch Epaphroditus at the airport when he's coming back. He's done good things. Honor him. Rejoice in his return. Look at the next verse. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor. Chapter three, verse one. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you. Chapter four, verse one. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown. Chapter four, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. In chapter four, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. It's so easy to forget when you run through that litany of verses about joy where this man is. He's chained to a Roman guard. He is writing this letter under the glint of the executioner's sword and the word that keeps tripping off his tongue is joy? Rejoicing? Gladness? Have you forgotten where you are? One of the most beautiful books that that I've read this year is entitled, Gay Girl, Good God. The subtitle is this, Who I Was and Who God Has Always Been. And Jackie Hill Perry, she, she comes to faith and Jesus Christ, and then at various points in the book, she looks back on how some people tried to win her to the faith, and it's instructive, I think, for us as Christians. Here's one of the things she observed. It seemed to be a religion of just duty. I'd met so many disciples who preached more of sin than joy, whose eyes were stuck in a constant state of solemnity, clenched teeth, and an endless fascination with holiness. Why hadn't they ever mentioned the place happiness had within righteousness or how the taking up of the cross would be a practice of obtaining delight, delight in all that God is? Even their Savior had this kind of joy in mind as he endured the cross. So why hadn't they set their focus on the same? In their defense, they were not to blame for my unbelief. I just wonder, 
I love this, listen to this. I just wonder if they would have told me about the beauty of God just as much, if not more, than they told me about the hardness of hell if I would have burned my idols at a faster pace. Gospel joy, friends. I've been harping on this for three and a half years. I'm just trying to show you, it's right here in scripture. Gospel joy is a revolutionary power for the gospel that, that God meant to unleash on the world through his people, the church. But I read that quote and I think, I was even praying this week, if there are non-Christians in the room, I, I wish, I wish I could just sit down with you and tell you my story and tell you about Jesus and all that he's done and his perfect work on the cross and it covers guilt and shame and sin and it's gone because his work was perfect on the cross. I wish I could bring into that conversation people from all around this room and tell you not only the ways in which his sufficient atonement has covered our sins, but the way he's holding people up who are sitting in this room right now who are walking through impossible circumstances. And if you've not trusted in Jesus, I wish you could just hear those stories. It's ringing in your ears. It's real. Jesus is real. The transformation is deep and profound. And I would tell you that story, and so many in this room would tell you that story in the hopes that you would believe, in the hopes that you would turn from sin and trust in Jesus and throw your life into his arms and take all of what he has. Let him take your sin and your guilt and your shame. Let him personally deliver God's promise of acceptance that lasts forever. Let him do that, right? Let him show you what you were made for, your purpose. There's joy in Christ. And we should be, as his people, we should be a joy-filled, buoyant, hopeful people. The angry Jesus Christian movement isn't going good places. Angry Jesus Twitter isn't missionally successful or effective. Look, I had a conversation with a family member some time back. His name is William. He's he married into uh, our family through a, a cousin of mine. And I've, I've never met William before, but, but he... Um, hates Jesus Christ. He will say it and he'll add some adjectives to prove his hatred of Jesus and Christians. And I posted something on Facebook a while back and he uh, didn't like it and he responded and he entered into a comments thread and um, we had an exchange there. We were just talking and I went the soft answer turns away wrath approach and and he dialed down, the heat dialed down. He stopped, he, kind of his tone changed and softened until uh, another well-meaning Christian swooped in to the comments thread and began personally insulting William, doesn't know William from Adam, and, and said, quote, William, that is the dumbest argument I've ever heard. I, I had to pause my conversation with William and figure out what's the more missionally urgent thing to do here? Continue with William or stop and talk to this person, this Christian who swooped in and get him to swoop out. 
to say that this is not helpful. I love this man. I'm praying for this. This man is a member of my family. We're having our very first conversation. He's never even talked to me before. I've never been in the same room with him before. We're finally having a conversation about something that's semi-spiritual. Can we just have this space? It's so aggressive. So bring the heat, right? Unload just pure gospel fury, just unloading on the world. It's not working. You know, I think think, um, maybe there was a day, maybe there was a day in American culture where it looked like that approach was going to work. You know, where Christianity was kind of given the seat of chaplaincy over the culture, and we were the ones to get us back to leave at the beaver days, right? That's, that's our job as Christians is to browbeat people and shame them away from the really ugly sins, but back to the more respectable ones, right? The ones you can commit if you're a deacon in a Baptist church and not lose your job, right? I think the new numbers are coming in, and that approach is being seen for what it always was, which is an unmitigated disaster, Friends, I think the moment that we're in, the laughing gas of cultural Christianity is wearing off. It may well be, this is just a guess, it may well be on the trajectory we're on that, that in the not too distant future, the only people who will claim to be Christians will be Christians. Which means what? It means we actually have to do this. We actually have to do the work. We have to. We actually have to pray. We have to lean into supernatural realities. We have to actually love people. We have to demonstrate the the power of the gospel to bring about unity and racial reconciliation and and to change our marriages and to change the way we do singleness and to change our words and our deeds and our actions in the world. We have to show that this stuff is real. Brooke Hills, God left us here for a reason. Our mission together is carried forward by people made new by the Holy Spirit of God. And because we've been captured by grace, everything is supposed to be different now. Not just for our own sake, but for the sake of a watching world. We live differently now. We don't make a fuss about how religious we are. We bring our burdens into the presence of a God who's listening. We part with what this world calls treasure and give gladly to the advancement of his mission. We live in this world like we're citizens of another one. We write joy-filled letters from Roman jail cells. These are... You catch Christians in our natural element, that's the stuff we do. We've been doing that stuff for 2,000 years. These are the goings-on of people on mission together for the glory of Jesus. And here's my prayer at the end of this series. I pray this catalyzes more of that. Pray that God would receive great glory through our lives and that God would grant us spirit-empowered resolve to every one of these ends for the glory of Jesus.